Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're going to be learning a lot about data science, about data engineering, uh, and 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 then also about how to scale businesses and and also how to come as a foreigner into the U.S. and also make it happen. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today to the show, Ali Gotzi. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So originally born in Iran during the revolution, so obviously not the not the best time to to be around there. But but what happened after this? Where did you go? Yeah, actually, sort of 1984, my family actually had to flee, so we had about 24 hours to get out of the country. You know, so wow. uh, uh, so they scrambled, and the I think the relationship with the United States was not great at that time. There was a hostage crisis, so my parents. Uh, you know, they got Sweden. That was the destination they picked. So far up in the north, very cold. Why Sweden, Ali? Uh, well, I think that's, you know, you have 24 hours, you, whatever, whoever will take you as a refugee, you'll go there. Uh, so, it. you know, so we showed up with, you know, leather jackets and mainly layers of clothes, you know, because it's really cold there. Wow. And you were five years old at this point. Yeah, correct. Got it. So tell us, tell us what happened. You know, then you arrived to Sweden and, and how was life there growing up? You know, so since my family didn't actually have a lot of funds, uh, you know, we ended up uh, moving to, you know, um, suburbs, which is not, the, these are not the nice, nicer parts of uh, Sweden. And uh, I, you know, I got actually a computer, a Commodore 64, and uh, it was kind of broken. You couldn't actually use it. The tape recorder was broken, so you couldn't play any games on it. So uh, the only thing you could really do with it was program. So I had a bunch of manuals and you could learn programming and you could start programming with it. So that's what I did, you know, since none of the games were working, started writing, you know, smaller programs and then eventually started writing games for it, you know. So, uh, you know, around the age of eight, that, that was pretty much what I was doing all day long was uh, was coding. And why do you think uh, you had this love for, for coding and perhaps same uh, resolving problems? Well, I really think, you know, it's like uh, there was not, not much else to do. And uh, since uh, you couldn't do any, you know, I didn't really have friends. So, you know, just sitting at home um, and, uh, you know, figuring out what this machine could do. I mean, I remember my cousin came, he was much older and he had, he said, that, you know, these things you can actually, you can tell them, you can build your own programs, you can build your own games yourself. And he, you know, pulled out the manual and showed me that you could actually start writing some basic and I was just blown away. So I started, you know, writing code immediately. So 
you know, that was it. I was kind of stuck just coding from that, that age on, uh, up until just actually a few years ago when I transitioned to CEO, I've been programming probably since the age of eight continuously. It's probably the one thing I've been doing every day almost. Very um, cool. And we'll yeah. talk about that transition because I think that the transition is also interesting when you go from engineering to, to the business side. But but let's not get ahead of ourselves here. So so you went to the university there uh, in Sweden, did, did computer engineering, then also did your MBA. Why why did you do logistics and strategic marketing? What was the uh, thought process behind that decision? Well, it's actually kind of silly. So I had I was 70% absent in high school because I was programming all night. I was actually on a U.S. time zone working with people in the U.S. So um, I ended up not getting in, it, into a very good school because of the 70% absence. So I had to move far away, even further north, to the northern parts of Sweden. And I showed up there and they gave me a roommate. And my roommate said, you know, he's doing a business degree. And I couldn't really understand what it was. It was like he was doing logistics and stuff like that. And, you know, and he was like, what do you do? And I said, well, I program, I do this. And he didn't understand what I'm doing. And then I kept asking him sort of, well, what does that mean? And at some point he just said, look, I'll be your boss when we're done. Okay. I'm like the manager and I'll be your boss. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, that's, that's BS, you know, so uh, I'm going to, you know, I'll see if I can do a dual degree. I'm going to do business as well. I'm not going to have that guy be my boss. So that, yeah. that was really, I'm, that was really honestly what was behind it. I had no idea what it was, but so I decided I, I'm going to do business. I'm not going to let the. Uh, you know, um, some other guy just picked, you know, a business degree, uh, you know, boss over me. So, you know, I did. <laughs> okay. Good okay. Good choice. Good choice. And then after this, you, you went and, and did your PhD. And I think that this was the transition now for, for you to start to, to really, you know, get your head up and, and, and look towards the, the U S so, so can you tell us about this? Yeah. So I started doing, uh, uh, my PhD actually on completely decentralized systems which actually are kind of precursors to what today is Bitcoin. And I started actually collaborating with a really, really smart guy in the U.S. or I actually had some, you know, papers and I got to interact with him. His name was Jan Stoiken. He was at MIT. And this was year 2000, probably two, I think, or 2003. And, uh, and um, you know, my research overlapped with him and we kind of, you know, semi kept in touch with these groups. And um, I finished my PhD in, in Sweden, and I took a professorship job there. Actually, I was a short stint here in the U.S., um, you know, in Palo Alto uh, for a summer, and I really didn't like it here. And I said, look, I'm, I'm definitely not moving to the U.S. ever. Um, it's all suburban and, you know, big cars and highways. Um, but, you know, 2009, uh, I, I got the opportunity to actually collaborate with that same guy from year 2000. He was at UC Berkeley. Um, and he was now a professor here and he said, you know, if you want to collaborate on these projects, maybe you can come here. And, um, and we talked over the phone and I said, look, maybe I should just go visit them for one year. I definitely don't like us. So I'm not moving there, but I'll do one year at UC Berkeley and I'll go back to Sweden. And that's how the transition started. So, you know, I spent, um, a year here working with Jan and was totally blown away. So what kind of stuff were you guys doing together there? Well, it was actually it was hard to know at that time, but it was actually an extremely important moment in sort of history. Basically what had happened, and it was not super clear at the time, but what, what had happened is that they basically stopped figuring out how to make computers faster. So, you know, mid-2000 is actually a big change in computing history. They don't know how to make computers any faster. When I grew up, the machines would double in speed every 18 months, right? It was like, you know, 16 megahertz, 33 megahertz, you know, you know, and so on and so forth, right? Faster and faster doubling. You get a new computer every year. 
but this changed around mid 2000, which then meant, you know, every computer was about three gigahertz. So what really happened is that they had to start moving a lot of the computations and a lot of the works into the data centers. So sort of data centers started to become the new computers. And we were sort of in the middle of this. We were getting funding from Silicon Valley tech companies that were making this transition. And we did a lot of research on how do we actually build this new software for this new computer? And the new computer is the data center. So we built a lot of software around this. And uh, it was exciting times. I mean, many of the projects we started now are used by sort of almost every enterprise uh, on the planet. So the timing was sort of perfect. So at the end of that year, he said, hey, let's stay another year. You know, I called back to family and friends and my girlfriend at the time. And they said, sure, it seems you're having a blast. Stay another year. And then I stayed another year and another year and another year. So, you know, that's that's how it happened. But it was really sort of magical years. Uh, we were, our timing was sort of perfect. Got it. So, so tell us about, you know, one of the projects, I believe it was a, a very popular open source project. Yeah. So this was Apache Spark. You know, it really what it started with is we were actually working on another project at that time. But um, there were these guys that were doing machine learning next to us. And um, they wanted to participate in this context called the Netflix competition. So what Netflix had done is they had given out a million movies or something like that. So, you know, here, here's what people think, how they rated all these movies come up with a machine learning algorithm that can predict what movies we should recommend to our viewers. And they were going to use this live, and whoever gets the best sort of accuracy, whoever can recommend the movies that people click on and watch those movies, will, I think, win half a million dollars. And the guy in the lab was saying, you know, I'm trying to do this, but the existing technology uh, at the time is really, really hard to use, and it's, it's taking forever. I'm using this thing called Hadoop, which was a big, big thing back then. Uh, help me. So, um, so some of the students in the lab started sort of working with with him and started on top of the project we had build this thing, which eventually became known as Apache Spark, to help him actually do these predictions. And interestingly enough, actually, um, we submitted the results uh, and we were tied for first place. So exactly the same accuracy, exactly the same everything, but they only would give uh, you know half a million dollars to one of them. So they picked whoever submitted the results first. So actually, this team ended up uh, not getting anything for it. But, uh, but that was the beginning of Apache Spark. So it was what, what the project did was it enabled you to take lots of lots of data, like movie recommendations, and do machine learning on it so that you can actually start predicting things. For instance, predicting what movies people haven't seen but they would like to see. Got it, got it. So I've heard as well that um, you guys are... Uh consider the true founders of AI. So uh, really celebrities, no, for the for the work that you had that you guys have done. So would you say that this was kind of like the the early beginnings to really establish the the pedigree that you guys have gotten, you know, from from your work? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, at the time of course nobody knew what this thing is or any of the other stuff we had. So we actually struggled really in uh, you know, 2009, 10, 11, 12 to get people to adopt this technology. And uh, we were going around in Silicon Valley, giving them this technology. We were giving it to these existing companies and saying, hey, please take this this technology and run with it. Go commercialize it. Make money on it. You can take credit for it. You can say you created it. We don't want anything. We just want the impact, right? We're Berkeley hippies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the response was, nah, this is not that interesting. This is academic. Some student wrote it. The student will, you know, quit and go on and do something else in their life. And then we're left with the source code. So we're not interested. So it was actually uphill battle, and uh, none of these companies actually ended up actually really adopting it. 
so you know, these tough years. Uh, we were just trying yeah. very hard. We we would send in students as interns, kind of like Trojan horses, yeah. uh, in the summer. And as Trojan horses, they would try to get them to adopt our software, but you know, it, it just wasn't working. And and obviously, I mean, now everyone is talking about artificial intelligence. Everyone, every single startup that is trying to pitch their idea, there's like some form of artificial intelligence. So it's it's really interesting, like the 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 how far along we've we've gotten now with this. Yeah, you know, AI is an old term. You know, the research on AI started in the fifties and sixties. So it was not a hot term in those days, in, you know, yeah. say 2009 or 10. Uh, maybe it was called machine learning. But yeah, so at that time, yet yeah, this there was the sort of there was no one, not that much interest in this stuff. Um, and it wasn't until really 2000, sort of uh, 13, that Ben Horowitz, who actually grew up in Berkeley, so you know, from Andreessen Horowitz, the you know famous VC, showed up and said, hey, "I've heard about you guys, and I think this thing you have is." Pretty amazing. I think you can create, you know, a hundred billion dollar company with this, um, you know, but you guys have to do it yourself. You have to start a company. No one else will do it for you. So you have to build this company. Yourself. How, how did he find you guys? How did he find you, Ali? Well, he had actually, so he knew some of the professors at Berkeley. So he knew another professor whose name was Scott Schenker. He had invested in a company there that was called Nasira, which had just got bought for $1.26 billion by VMware. And Scott was involved also in creating Databricks. So somehow they started talking and sort of he, he heard from Scott that, you know, we're working on this thing called Spark and it does machine learning and much better than Hadoop. So he, he had heard through the grapevine and he came to us. And, and actually, we were actually not that interested in taking his money initially. So it didn't actually look like we were going to take his money. So then, so then, when he started talking about like how this could become a one hundred billion and 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 obviously like formalizing more into a corporate type of structure. So, so walk us through what was the process until you guys finally said, okay, let's do this thing, let's take the money and let's build something big so that we can really take AI to the masses. Yeah, you know, we were we were you know engineers, right? So we said, uh, you know, who's this guy? You know, he's going to come in and you know spend all this money. You know, he's he's not building this stuff with us, so. We just need $200,000. And if someone gives us $200,000, we can take small salaries and we work on it for a year and we start, you know, a company. And then later we can figure out to raise more money. But um, just in case, we went around the founders, there were six of us, and said, hey, is there some price? If he comes in at that price, sort of, we would just go with it and despite the odds, just let him invest. And, you know, the first guy say, you know, because remember, we had nothing, right? So the first guy maybe said, yeah, if he values our whole company at, say, $20 million, then then maybe we'll like let him invest. And then we went to the next co-founder and he said, oh, you know, no, 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 it has to be more valuable, maybe 25 million. And the numbers kept going up as we were on the, you know, and I think it went up to someone said, yeah, you know, it should be a 30, $35 million company. Then maybe we'll let him invest. And Ben mm-hmm. came in one day and he said, hey guys, I'm not going to haggle with you guys. I'm valuing your company at 50 million and I'm going to give you this much money and, you know, take it or leave it. And we were like, we're taking it. <laughs> so we jumped in and, you know, took it immediately. So that's how we ended. He sort of, just from the get-go, outbid all of us, and we took the money. And I remember the day when the money actually came into the bank account. All the founders went to that, you know, laptop, and we saw the bank account. It said, you know, 14, you know, it was like six zeros after it. (laughs) And we were like, wow, that's so much money. You know, I was making $59,000 at that time at Berkeley. Yeah, wow. And we were like, oh, we could, if we put this in a bank, we can get interest on this. You know, how much is the interest? And, you know, someone... 
you know, pulled out the, you know, calculator and computed how much interest there was. And we're like, yeah, we should just like put it in a bank account and just, <laughs> you know, live off the interest. So that was, uh, we were off the races. That was how it started. And, and how many of you guys, uh, you know, really jumped into this? What was the founding? Well, uh, interestingly, I was actually the one that was only one foot in. So I was like probably the least interested of the six. Uh, I kind of wanted to continue. We had such an amazing streak with the research. We had so much impact with this research, uh, you know, in academia. So I wanted to kind of continue doing that. So I kind of said, hey, I don't know if I want to do the startup. But then it turned out like, you know, the other co-founders, they were taking every member in this research lab and taking it to the startup. So I realized it's going to be completely empty at UC Berkeley. So I might as well just join them. So um, I joined kind of part-time initially. Got it. So then walk us through, through what happened then. You take the money. You, everyone is joining and uh, you start recruiting people and, and then the company is born and, and, and what, what happens next? Yeah. So we're downtown Berkeley and, uh, you know, we started coding and we started bringing in these super smart, uh, people. And actually, unfortunately, the first engineer that we hired is one of the smartest students sort of we ever met. His name is Aaron. And this guy is one of the most brilliant guys we've ever met. He's the first guy we hire. And, you know, we've never interviewed people before. So we asked him some questions and he just sort of handled them very easily. So then from now on, the next five, six people we interview who were actually also amazing, we immediately rejected them because we said, ah, not that good compared to the first guy, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, you know, we had super high bar initially. So actually we had to like sort of adjust it and we started hiring these engineers and we started coding away, but we were in an uphill battle and these were tough times because people didn't believe in Spark. And now that we had a company around it, actually the Silicon Valley tech companies that were selling these other competing technologies like Hadoop, you know, these were big billion dollar companies, they started actually spreading quite a bit of FUD, you know, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about Spark. So they would say, oh, you know, this thing, it's not fantastic. Maybe it's good for one or two things or, you know, one thing, but it cannot do all these other things or, you know. So there was a lot of skepticism towards our software. In particular, one thing they kept saying is, Spark is great if you have massive amounts of memory, but what if you have so much data it doesn't fit in the memory? Then Spark will not work, so don't use it. And it was very frustrating to us because actually our technology would work both in memory and on disk. So we could actually handle all these big data sets that were on disk, but you know, this, we kept hearing it from everybody. They would go to these conferences and they would say, yeah, we heard from this other vendor that your technology doesn't really work if it doesn't fit in memory. So you know, we have a lot of data, so sorry, we can't use your technology. So, you know, this was for several years. We kept fighting this and fighting this and fighting this and just, you know, was going nowhere. And, you know, these conferences have thousands of people going to them. They're spending a lot of marketing, you know, budgets. It seemed impossible to sort of, you know, get our message out and tell them the truth that, of course, this works. This works on everything. Got it. Got it. And and did you guys experience any any challenges as well with being six co-founders? There's a lot of egos there to manage. Yeah, you know, I'll get to that. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 a real strength today. It's one of our superpowers. Okay. Uh, we, used to, we used to always joke that you know the PayPal mafia was six people too, so uh, they were six, uh, we're six. But you know, it's also a lot of opinions, and especially if you come from academia and you have six uh, six people, you know, six researchers. There's a lot of debate about everything. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, you know, it slowed us down, and it's you know created a lot of like, should we go left? Should we go right? Uh, but really, we were all just focused. How can we make this Spark thing take off? And the first two, three years, the, you know, we, it wasn't really taking off. No one was really adopting it. So we had all these uphill battles. And then something sort of amazing happened in 2015. So what happened? 
for basically 2015, we decided to participate. This is just this marketing thing that we decided to do on the side. So we decided, look, we were kind of fed up. Everybody keeps saying, if your data doesn't fit in memory, their technology doesn't work. So we decided to participate in a sort of geeky contest, another contest, you know, not the Netflix context. This time it was what's called the sorting challenge. And this is a contest where you take a lot of random data and you have to sort it. So you have to just sort all the numbers. In particular, we sorted, we wanted to sort one petabyte of data. Okay, that's a lot, right? And we didn't have one petabyte of memory. Uh, so we had much less memory than one petabyte and still we wanted to sort this petabyte of data. So we sat up, you know, we worked on it day and night and with one of my co-founders, Reynold, um, you know, we were able to basically get it down and beat the world record and do the fastest anyone has ever done uh, sorting a petabyte of data. And uh, we submitted the results, this got out, and then the media started talking about this. And they said, hey, the Berkeley guys, they just won the sorting contest and they sorted one petabyte of data uh, faster than anyone's done before. And they didn't actually have even a petabyte of memory. So this made it very, very clear that, of course, this works even if your data doesn't fit in memory. And the pendulum almost swung almost overnight with this event. You know, this, suddenly this becomes the most popular software. Gartner puts it at the top of the hype cycle. Every one of these companies that have been rejecting it puts on their webpage, we love Spark. In fact, they started saying, we are the Spark company, not Databricks, you know. And uh, before you know it, you know, overnight, everything has changed. And it coincided with this winning the sorting contest. Got it. So then, so then I, I understand as well that, that right before this, I think it was like about in 2013, that's when you become the CEO. And, and I understand as well that there were perhaps some conversations at a board level. So, so walk us through this, through this change as well. Yeah, so, you know, so this is 2015. Uh, so it's awesome. The technology is really, uh, uh, you know, the technology is now being adopted by everyone, but it's actually open source technology. Yeah. So, uh, so the bad news is our revenue at that time is only $1 million. So here we are. At that point, we've raised quite a bit of money. The company valuation is probably, you know, somewhere around between, I think that year, actually 2015, we got a $500 million valuation. So the company is really valued highly, but we only have $1 million of revenue. And the board is, board is getting really anxious with us. You know, they said, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have less revenue than the local restaurant, you know, and great. You built this amazing technology that you're giving away for free and everybody else is making way more money on your technology. You guys, just, you're just not business guys. You can't figure this out. And at that time, actually, my CEO, co-founder, Jan Stoka, uh, you know, he, he was, he's a professor at Berkeley, so you had to go back to Berkeley, you know, because they only give you sort of absence of leave for a period of time. Yeah. So they started also doing now a CEO search. And sort of most of us kind of threw in the towel, uh, thinking, you know, we had a great experience. How many times in life do you get to write software that the whole world adopts? We kind of impacted the world and changed it with the software we're just not business guys we don't know how to make money so let's just go back to academia and you know come up with the next cool thing that was sort of my thinking as well and they talked to a bunch of ceos but then at the end of it ben horowitz is a big fan of founder ceos so he sort of towards the end is sort of like hey maybe we should pick this uh, uh you know this ali guy should be the ceo and we kind of scratched our head i mean even i was like is that a smart idea switching one berkeley professor for another professor uh, as a CEO, 
but that's what he did. And uh, you know, in January 2016, uh, um, I took over as Jan uh, was going back to Berkeley. And why you out of the six? Ah, uh, probably I was the oldest after Jan. <laughs> <laughs> so you think that Ben Horowitz suggesting it was just uh, based on age? Yeah, the other guys, you know, they were in the twenties. You know, they looked a little young. They didn't have enough gray hair. So, uh, you know, let's let's take the older looking dude. Got it, got it. So pretty cool. So then, uh, after all of this, all of the adoption and everything, so you take us the um, take the reins as the CEO of the business. And then what, what do you start implementing or what do you start doing to really understand or figure out how the hell you make money? Yeah, so keep in mind that uh, at that time, my psychology was, um, you know, I have nothing to lose uh, and a little bit of disappointment, you know, because we hadn't made much revenue. So I just wanted to go back to the university and do research just like uh, my co-founder, Jan. Uh, so when I took over in January, you know, you could, what do I have to lose? I can make some pretty big diff- changes, right? So. Um, so pretty much um, three changes were done. Uh, one was we really kind of did this pivot into enterprise uh, sales. So we really started focusing on large enterprises. Uh, before that, we had, as a team, tried to really make Databricks work in an almost self-serve way. People come in, swipe their credit cards, and they just use this technology. And we don't need to really have sort of massive salespeople that go there and try to sell them. But now we kind of like pivoted and went all in uh, on the sales. And at that time, we had also now hired uh, an enterprise sales leader. Ron started at the same time. So he started building up and we started hiring these very expensive sales guys. And the thinking was pretty simple. The thinking was, who in the world will pay you $10 million if you improve something 1% for them? It's the really big corporations. The big corporations have a lot of data. And if you say improve by reducing 1% fraud using AI, they'll pay you, you know, $20 million. So let's get those those guys as customers. And it turns out that those really big enterprises, they buy software the same way for for the last 30 years. They buy through relationships. And so the enterprise sales teams are really, really important. So that was change number one. So we started investing a lot in these guys. And I remember, you know, uh, the, the first guys we hired, you know, each of these sales guys, they make $300,000 or $350,000. That's a lot of money, right? Yeah. For, you know, especially for me, I was making $60,000 at Berkeley two years earlier. So do we want to really pay these guys and they don't have any PhDs, you know, but uh, we decided to take a bet on it and it started paying off. That's one. The second was, I was sort of like, okay, um, if you want me to go in the front lines and fight this war, uh, and I've never done it before, then I want all my lieutenants to be super experienced. So I started hiring an exec team that was I sort of over-indexed on experience. People who've done it before, uh, because, you know, there were a lot of us. We were six co-founders, you know, with PhDs. We're smart, but we had never done it before. So let's bring in the pros. So I did 12 executive searches uh, and hired, you know, over time, these 12 execs. Um, so that was the second change with it. So really up-leveled the team. People who really know marketing, people who really know sales, people who know customer success, people who know finance, uh, people who know customer success. You know, as before that, we were trying to sort of innovate as researchers and figure out each of these departments ourselves. And we were trying to sort of almost reinvent the wheel and maybe even come up as researchers with a better way of doing marketing than anyone has done before. But at this point, I just thought, you know, let's focus our innovation on the technology. And then on this other stuff, let's just get the pros. Uh, so that was the second uh, big change that we did. 
The third was focus on the enterprise features. So the open source technology is great, but let's start building uh, proprietary software that is really focused on the enterprise features that the large enterprises need so that we have something really valuable we can sell. And those were the three changes that really sort of helped the company uh, turn it around. So at what point do you really kind of like are able to be, you know, somehow relieved? Because I guess as, as the founder and CEO, there's, there's always fires that you need to put out. But at what point do you realize, hey, I think that we are into something here and I think we have a meaningful business that, that is actually producing revenue and addressing the concerns that the board had? Yeah, it took a while, right? So first year, I think we had said, you know, we're going to do probably $10 million this year of uh, revenue. And, you know, I was new, new head of sales. I've never done this before. So my head of sales said, you know, I don't want to lower the number, but I have no idea, you know, if we can go to 10 million or not. I don't know what this is based on. I don't know how someone came up with this number, but, you know, I don't like, if they said 10, let's do 10. Let's figure it out. Um, and we had no idea. We didn't do any modeling or anything like that. So we just sprinted really fast that year. And at the end of that year, I think we came in at 13 or 14. So that was great. So survived one year, uh, didn't get fired. Um, I don't think any of us thought this is awesome. Now we have an amazing company that has a great business model. We just thought, okay, we survived one year. Uh, let's do it again. Let's see if we can, uh, uh, we can actually, uh, beat the number this year. The second year, then 2017, we promised the board, I think 24. And that seemed like a really big number. So we started sprinting really, really hard. And, um, we started getting, I think our first million dollar deal that year. So that was a sign that, you know, maybe it's doable because before that people would just pay us $12,000 maximum, sometimes 18,000. And then we had a few $30,000 deals, but $30,000 seemed to be the magical limit, which no one would pay us above. I almost thought it's some kind of rule of law. Uh, but now suddenly in 2017, we were getting sort of a million dollar deal here and things started to slowly take off. Um, and I think end of that year, we actually did 30 million, uh, not 24. So, um, our sort of recurring revenue at the end of that year was $40 million. So now we had a pretty sizable business and started to realize that, you know, maybe there is a product market fit here and maybe we can actually build something. So I think, uh, 2018 was sort of the year where, you know, I felt like maybe sort of we're out of the woods and we're, uh, maybe we're onto something here and maybe we can really scale and push this. Got it. And I believe that last year you guys did about a hundred million and this year on track to double. So, so why, why, how, how did you manage to do this? Yeah. I mean, uh, at 2018, we started investing heavily then because then we realized, you know, this is, um, this, this has the shot to really sort of be big. So we started investing big time. We raised quite a bit of capital and invested at capital in, you know, partnerships. So we have a big partnership team. We have probably 70 people who just focus on just partnerships, you know, uh, so that was a big investment, started, uh, investing more in marketing, uh, making sure that we actually are, uh, sort of, uh, you know, present, um, all over the world started investing more in sales in Europe. So we started hiring pretty big sales team in Europe. We probably have about hundred employees now in Europe. And, um, you know, many of these investments that sort of, uh, to really set us up for large scale in the future, Got it. Uh, started happening then. We also started building a lot of the enterprise features that the enterprises need. Those are difficult and costly and frankly, quite boring features around security. But we started investing in doing those. And, um, you know, these things start paying off. It takes a year or two, but they start paying off. And how many employees do you guys have now? 
Uh, we're close to 900. Wow. So I guess uh, for you, you know, just, just, you know, thinking about the the incredible transformation that you've also experienced as a founder. No? So you started on the engineering side. You were an engineer, you know, all your life. And then you had to go into a, into a business guy, you know, like what, what was that transition for you? Like, because I'm sure that there's a lot of people on the, on right now listening to us and probably they, they're about to make another similar transition, you know, maybe going from engineer to, to kind of like the business hat to putting the business hat on. So, so how was that transformational journey for you? Like, yeah, I mean, I loved it because for me it was, I got into computers as a kid because I liked the challenge. Um, so I think uh, it was probably the most challenging thing I've done in my life is the transition, especially to CEO. So I love that challenge. Um, you know, you learn a lot. It's a steep learning curve. So I, you know, I love that. Uh, but it's quite different. You know, it's basically the skill sets needed by a CEO are extremely different. They're almost the opposite of what you need as a researcher or as a research leader. So, um, um, you know, I had to learn all of those and, you know, talk to people, get coaches, um, uh, you know. Got it. So I guess for the, um, for this Ali, for, to be an effective CEO, what would you say are the key ingredients? Yeah. So I think the CEO job is, can actually be summarized quite simply. One, you need a vision and you need a vision that's compelling and can get a lot of people behind it. And it's sort of audacious and really forward looking. Um, a lot of people don't actually come up with that, you know, for their companies, they run their startup, but they haven't actually articulated, uh, what that vision is. Uh, so you need to articulate that and then you need to repeatedly repeat it to the company. Okay. Repeat it at all hands every week, repeat it in all kinds of contexts to new hires, just do this over and over and over again so that everybody's aligned on, uh, what is the vision? What are we trying to do together? Okay. And it needs to be something inspiring. It needs to be something that's not around how much money we're going to make. Not around, uh, you know, how successful we're going to be. It needs to be something that's really, um, something really aspirational. So that's one. Uh, two, you have to figure out a strategy because great. And anyone can say, look, okay, we're going to solve world peace. Great. How? Uh, what's the strategy? What are the things we're going to do in the next two years? So come up with a strategy and then the strategy shouldn't be 20 things that we're going to do. It needs to be, you know, three, four, two, maybe max five things. And then keep repeating those. Uh, for the company and make sure that you have actually a way in which you can actually operationalize that for the company. So that's the second is the strategy and also repeating that strategy. Third, probably the most important, you have to hire an executive team that's really strong that can actually execute on this. So that's probably the hardest part, finding those people in the team that you have that report to you that can really execute. Um, so that's probably the most difficult part. And this is where I see a lot of people failing. And then finally, uh, four, you have to make sure that that team is actually aligned, working together, and actually um, executing on that strategy and towards that vision. Got it. My follow-up question on this, um, Ali, is also making sure that there's money in the bank is, is critical. And, and I think that you guys have done a tremendous job when, when it comes to, to raising money. So how much capital have you guys raised today? We've raised half a billion dollars. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, we were talking a lot of zeros before with uh, Ben's investment, like at 14, Yeah. but 500 million is, is quite a bit. And, and I've also heard that the valuation is 2.75 billion. So uh, really, really impressive, uh, Ali. So can you walk us through what were kind of like the different financing milestones that you guys uh, accomplished over time with the business? Yeah. You know, I mean, our story is a little bit different in the sense that we had this technology. And as I said, 
eventually people started uh, really adopting it. Our issue was every time we raised money in the beginning, we would tell them about how amazing the technology is and we'd tell them how many people in the world are using it. And, you know, probably first time we raised Series A, they said, okay, this is phenomenal. Your guys are awesome. But next time you come back to raise money, make sure that you've made some money. Um, so, you know, next time we came back Series B, we still had only um, lots of adoption. We didn't really have any revenue. So this time they told us, look, last time, okay, so next time you probably cannot raise any more money unless you have some revenue. And, you know, we repeated this for Series C, and I would say even Series D, we didn't really have any significant. Our revenue was $1 million, right? So um, so that, that was the pressure on us was, you know, can you actually, we see the momentum, we see that there's a lot of excitement, can you actually make money? And that's why, you know, 2015 was a rough year, right? Because I think the board was starting to get the sense that, look, you guys are brilliant, but I don't know if you can make any money. Uh, you know, after that, you know, series, you know, um, D and, you know, E and so on, it pretty much just boiled down to, can you beat the numbers? What's the momentum? What are the metrics? So a lot of it starts becoming centered around how can you actually monetize this? So that's really the key thing. So in my opinion, if you can sell them, it's similar to what I said, what you do as a great CEO. Same thing when you're pitching them. Tell them that you have a great vision and that there's a huge TAM. And then tell them that you have some secret sauce that others don't have. Because, yeah, there's great TAMs out there, great markets, but, you know, anyone could do that. So you have to have some secret sauce. And then you have to show them that you have some special team. And then if the team is really strong and they bet on the team, you have to show them that you have momentum around the numbers. Yeah. It's really as simple as that. And if that presentation is really convincing, um, usually you know, things go well if the markets are, you know, liquid. Got it. And obviously amazing investors. I mean, you guys saying we were talking about Andreessen Horowitz having been there, one of the founders, NEA, Battery Ventures, Data Collective. And I also see that you guys have the, you know, kind of like an interesting investor, Microsoft. So so what is the reasoning behind bringing a strategic like Microsoft into, into the equation here? Yeah, we just wanted to deepen our partnership with them. So Microsoft has actually OEM'd our solution. So there's actually something called Microsoft Azure Databricks, which is a Microsoft product. And just like you buy Office, you can buy from them Microsoft Azure Databricks. And um, this is obviously developed by us, and we're actually running it for them. But uh, it's a very deep partnership between the engineering teams. And this was going really, really well. So we just wanted to further deepen that partnership. And uh, for that reason, uh, they came in as investors in our uh, last round got it and i guess uh, as you know uh, as we know ali the the journey of of being you know a, an entrepreneur is is just full of ups and downs you know there is especially those dark moments where we really get to to thrive and and to grow right we experience that growth that comes perhaps with breakdowns that lead into into breakthrough situations so what would you say you know as you're looking back you know in in the journey of building the business was perhaps one moment that that was really challenging for you and that and that ended up being a massive breakthrough for you and perhaps for the business as well. Uh, I think CEO transitions are extremely hard. They're very difficult. They're painful for everybody involved, um, and they take a long time. And I think if you do it really well, the company only loses one year. <laughs> so I feel like we almost it took us almost a year uh, to get that both sort of prepare that and make that happen. And then, you know, for me to settle in and take over. So that was probably, for me at least, personally, the most challenging thing. And But I also think for uh, many of the others in the company. 
Got it. And then obviously, you know, a hyper growth business, you know, that you've that you've built from the ground up to to become a two point seven billion valuation. I mean, that level of growth also comes with an unbelievable level of growth for you. I mean, if the company is growing at a hundred x level or whatever, you know, a multiple that is, you need to be growing in parallel at the same level. So, how did you manage to do that? Yeah, this is a great question because most companies, most large companies people's careers can grow much faster than the company, right? Most, most really large companies that grew, grow maybe 20 30% revenue every year, you can actually, if you're really smart, grow your career faster than that. And you can get promoted and promoted and so on. In a hyper-growth startup, it's actually the opposite. The company's outgrowing almost every employee. You hire someone, they're awesome at their job. Six months later, they're already uh, over their skis. So this is sort of a challenge at startups. And it's also sort of a mindset change that you have to tell your employees about. So you have to tell them that, look, the norm is that you likely will get layered. We'll probably get a new boss for you. And it's okay. It's normal because we're growing so fast. We're going to be several thousand employees in a couple of years. So this is a challenge. And the same challenge applies to the CEO, uh, which is me. So I have to keep up. And the way to keep up is build a network of others who have done it, uh, pick their brain, read lots and lots of books on the topic. And, you know, have an open mind um, and make sure that you don't have the attitude that, you know, I'm really smart. I did this and that yesterday. So it's going to also work when I do it today. No, what you did yesterday might not apply anymore. That technique from yesterday might not work at this scale anymore. So you have to change your ways every time, right? You know, for instance, for me, transitioning from managing really smart people to managing actually experienced execs is very different. It's turned out with experienced execs, you can't tell them exactly what they should do. You know, <laughs> you don't hire seasoned, you know, execs in their 40s and 50s uh, to micromanage them. So, you know, you have to learn and change your way that, you know, okay, with them, maybe you should be a little bit more declarative and tell them what the goal is and let them figure out how to do it. These kind of things you have to all the time, you know, you have to change your style every year to adapt to what's needed. You know, as you expand your business to Europe and Asia Pac, which we've done now, you know, the cultures are different there. How do you manage those teams? Uh, you have to adapt all the time. Got it. And, and talking about, you know, getting ahead of your skis and, and, and scaling, right? Because scaling also comes with, with another, you know, set of challenges. What is probably, let's say, from the network that you build, where you had like meaningful discussions to get their advice, and then also from what you have experienced, what is the most common challenge, in, you know, when, when you're scaling? Well, it's really, if you're in a hyper-growth company, it's always the same. How do you find phenomenal leaders that can give you leverage, right? So in some sense, my job as a CEO is super simple and anyone can do it if I have an amazing team underneath me that's really stellar and they work well together. Then I kind of don't have to do anything. So the question is, how do you build that team? And once you've built that team, how do you make sure that that team is also amazing and scaling? Because the team that is awesome for a hundred person company is different from a 200 person company. You know, there's Dunbar's law around 150 and it's different for 500 person company from a thousand person company from a, you know, multiple, um, sort of multi country company, you know, that spans several continents. Yeah. And I think that the, um, you know, like you're saying, obviously hiring great people is, is critical, but I think that also having them working well together is even more critical. So how, how do you think about, Culture, Ali. Yeah, I mean, culture is super important as you scale. And we have really new people coming in all the time. You, you can do things two ways. 
you can micromanage anyone and put down policies and lots of rules for everything. And you can tell people exactly what are the rules of exactly how to behave in every situation. And you can have sort of an iron grip. But that obviously doesn't scale. So the other way to do it is to have some cultural principles and get everybody aligned on the cultural principles. And then they can figure out what the exact rules are themselves. But at least they fit within the big umbrella of the culture you want to have. For, an, for example, if you want to have a frugal culture like Amazon, you can say frugality is a cultural principle. And then everything else will sort itself out. They'll have processes and rules on budgets and so on, but you don't have to micromanage them, right? So as you scale in hyper-growth startup, it's super important that you actually are governing through culture. It's actually a governance tool, and it's actually a competitive advantage against your competition is the cultural principles that you put in place. But it's also rules of engagement internally. How do we actually work together? Can we criticize each other? Or, you know, is it okay that we get in rooms and shout at each other? Or are we really teamwork oriented? Which type of country, company do we want to be? And what kind of behavior is okay? It's super important. Uh, that helps you also scale because it makes us more aligned internally. So you have to spend a lot of energy on culture as you scale. You know, right after, you know, 150, 200, 300 employees, that starts mattering much, much, much more, especially when you start having people remote in other places of the world other time zones far away, you have to really work hard on the culture. Yeah, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, every every office, you know, in every different, you know, country, for example, is going to have its its own culture, no, type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of the cultural principles you have are maybe a little bit harder or maybe easier to actually land in other cultures on the other parts of the planet. So you have to work through each of them and adapt them and work with the leaders there. And you have to make sure that your leaders are also continuing to also establish that culture on the next level. So it's not just the CEO's job to talk about the culture all the time. All the leaders have to continue doing that. And at each level, they have to adapt it to what's going on in the ground so that it doesn't become some super abstract uh, principle that you can't really map the reality. And then, of course, you know, everyone knows this, but you have to hire and you have to promote people and also sometimes manage people out uh, because they fit or do not fit your culture. Yeah, absolutely. So one one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity to, let's say, go back in time, and I know that this is obviously impossible, but if you had that opportunity and, and to have a, a chat you know, with your younger self, obviously now knowing everything that you know now about building, scaling, financing, you know, everything around hyper-growth companies, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business and why? I would focus it on hiring leaders. I would say spend even more energy on hiring great leaders and finding leaders and growing leaders internally because that's going to be one of your main bottlenecks. So spend a lot of energy on that and do whatever is needed to get those people. Pay them whatever is needed and bend over backwards. Do whatever you can do in your power to grow those leaders and keep those leaders because as the company grows, that's going to be your main bottleneck. It's very hard to find really talented, great, amazing people who are in a place in their life, timing-wise and situation, that they want to actually join you and give their 100%. So even more energy and time around that would have been something that I would give myself advice. You know, I try to do a lot of other things. You know, as a CEO, you want to sort of weigh in on all the decisions and get things right. And, you know, we have an opinion on this and that, but should have probably spent more energy just finding the right leaders and the rest will kind of sort itself out. So I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening now that they're probably wondering, like, how do you, how do you find the right leaders? What, what would you tell them, Ali? 
Well, actually, I think it's very simple. Um, any hiring is a trade-off between time and quality. So I can find the best leader, easy, not even hard, if you give me two, three, four, five years. I'll just interview all day long and until like, you know, I spend all my time. But that's obviously not good enough. I can also hire extremely fast by just getting the first person that walks in the door. So the question is, how do you actually do both at the same time? And I think the trick is you have to basically hire ahead of the curve. You have to start a little early. You know, if you're starting to hire, which a lot of CEOs uh, do, which was my advice to my younger self as well, if you start hiring when you actually really, really need the person and it's almost you needed them to join you yesterday, it's almost impossible to succeed now because now you're under time pressure. And as I said, it's a trade-off between time and quality. So you don't have much time now because you needed this person yesterday and you know, it's going to be difficult to find that quality that you need. So uh, if anything, hire ahead of the curve. So hire when you don't really need them. People say that about money always. They say raise money when you don't need it. Well, do the same thing with the leaders. See if you can, you know, don't wait until it's absolutely necessary. Start a little bit earlier. Take your time. See lots of lots of different candidates. Go meet the best ones out there. If, uh, if you can't hire the best, just have coffee with the best and pick their brain and tap into the networks and uh, start building those networks. And also remember, if you can't get the particular person now, keep in touch. You can get them in half a year or a year. Many of my executives that I've hired, I kept in touch with over a long period of time and they joined me eventually later. Because as your company grows and you become more successful, you suddenly have access to talents that never would have joined you when you were, you know, six researchers out of UC Berkeley, you know, with no money uh, or cash, uh, you know, flow being generated. Later, when you actually have a lot of revenue coming in and you can pay those bigger salaries, uh, a lot of people might change their sort of attitude about your company. The risk profile changes. Uh, So those are my advice for how to actually really sort of start early and really interview a lot of people and keep them in your network and keep them warm and higher ahead of the game. I love it. I love it. That's very, very profound, Ali. I love, I love how you say that you need to hire when you don't need it, just like raising money. You know, I a hundred percent agree with you. When you need money, people are not going to give it to you. And when you need to hire, it's, it's too late. So that, that was great, Ali. So, so for the folks that are, that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Just LinkedIn with me. I'm uh, Ali Gatsi at Databricks on LinkedIn. All right, fantastic. Well, Ali, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.